So I want to echo a warm welcome and just say it's just really lovely to be here in such a lovely space, you know, with an incredible view and very still and quiet. You know, we're in the middle of a city and it's completely still and you can't hear noise of cars or traffic or sirens and you hear the gentle rain and you hear the cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And um, I lived in Berkeley for a couple of years. It's from 1980 to 1982. I was taking a couple of years out from university. And, uh, but I never came here. I never knew that the Berkeley Marina existed. So for me, this is a whole new kind of experience. So it's lovely being here. Very beautiful space. And so, you know, the, the title, From Muck to Freedom, you know, you sit in a place like this and just relax into the silence and you hear the soft rain and you look out and you see this incredible view. And, you know, the, you're in a field of generosity, of kindness of people who have offered a space like this just out of a sense of goodwill. You think, you know, what's the problem? <laughs> you know, there's all of what can see is actually quite lovely. And it's important to sense and reflect and feel. Uh, how lovely it is, you know, how lovely the space is. And coming back into the States, so I've been living in England for the last 20 years, and I've been back and forth over these 20 years, visiting family and teaching and all the rest of that. And I come back, and, you know, every once in a while I get different glimpses of where the culture is at or how things have shifted or where people are at. And it's, it's, it's just interesting to get tones or moods or, you know, and because I'm not in it, I can see it a little bit different than when I'm in the soup, as it were, you know. And so, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting experience coming back to the States, and particularly being in the Bay Area, because from a perspective of, for example, you know, a third world country or some areas of England where I've been, you know, this is a very affluent area. You know, people live in houses which why most other people's standards are fancy. You know, drive cars that are fancy. You know, and uh, things are set up in the society which is meant to take a lot of care of people in ways that are not always the case in other areas of the world. And yet what I also pick up is, is that there's, there's a, a kind of underlying stress. And it's not too surprising, you know, considering the kind of changes that are going on in the in the, in the politics, in the economy, how much pressure people are under now just to earn a living, to pay for mortgages and pay car payments and get food on the table. It's actually a lot harder to do that now than it has been a few years ago. And so, you know, there's, there's an increased pressure that people are under. And as a result of the pressure... Um, there's sometimes a scrambling to keep on top of the information that's coming in in terms of the latest stuff with the politics, with the environment, with what's going on, with the details that one needs to manage in terms of day-to-day. And then we have all these increased technologies which are meant to be really helpful. But then the increased technologies also drive us and, and, and increase the amount of input that we get. And so what happens is, is, is that there's less and less space and time just to be still and to feel what's happening and more and more pressure to do things and to get things and to have things and to organize one's life according to a standard. And, you know, it's a little bit like um, the sense is, is, is that people are not so much sitting with the the values of their lives is not so much what's directing them. They're being pulled and pushed by forces outside. And so I come into this and just feel it, you know, feel the impact of how I sense it and, and, um, and see that, you know, the conundrum that people are working with and, and I'm beginning to get a sense of it myself. So, you know, as I'm starting this new project, I too am feeling information overload of having to figure out a million different things that I've never had to put my attention to before and spend hours a day on the computer writing emails and communicating with people and trying to organize stuff and 
you know, the basis of my life has been as a contemplative nun, where I'm used to spending uh, many hours a day in silence and meditation practice and having clear patterns of time out and retreat and time when all that is needed is to um, attend to the arising of what's arising in the present moment. And what I'm needing to do is uh, very complex at the moment in terms of looking after my father and negotiate the kind of change of what I've just come from and beginning to start thinking about uh, creating a new organization and what is needed for that and networking. And I live in a place that people don't have a clue in the world what monastics are or how to look after them. And so, you know, the kind of basic Dhamma sense which is here in in the Bay Area is not so strong and there isn't a present of monastics there and and so it's like there's a lot of things having to process and so you know I feel myself tense with it all and so you know I'm I am surrounded by people who are kind and I'm surrounded by people who have good intentions and yet what I experience is tension and trying to navigate the layers of information and the multitasking and the emotional impact of what it is that I'm uh, walking through. And I can imagine that that's actually probably similar for many people. You know, it's actually not so different. So when I look at these kinds of things, you know, uh, information overload, time pressure, and emotional processing, you know, it's not as if I can come up with magic wands and just go boop, boop, and it's gone, you know. But what I can begin to do is look and pick apart uh, some of the different ways that I experience it and some of the different ways that I can relate to it, you know. So one of the things that I've done as a way of starting to network is, is I got a, a web site and a Facebook account, all right. Now, I've never had a Facebook account before. <laughs> And I thought, you know, this is, this is madness, what Facebook accounts are. <laughs> but they're actually not madness if you learn how to use them right. But what's the right way of using them? Is it in order to network and in order to support a, a way of communicating that is encouraging a sense of well-being? Or is it this being pulled and sucked into something that has its own energy force and life force of its own, you know? So I watch the movement between these two as I'm working with these new modalities of communication and watching what happens when I am lost in being sucked into something and all of the kind of infinite progressions of connecting possibilities that can go on in all directions (laughs) and try and think, well, what am I actually doing this for? And then I come back, oh yeah, well the point of doing this is to create forms and structures that allow connection that support Dhamma and create an opportunity for people to connect around the theme of Dhamma. And then I think, oh okay, so I don't actually need to know everything about Facebook or I need to have a gazillion friends. You know, in fact, I started trying to figure out how I can have, because I was taking too many minutes trying to, say yes to all the people who wanted to be my friend. How to <laughs> you know, how do you how do you just have some you know, how do you do this in a way that makes sense, you know? So and then and then I don't have a cell phone and somebody today just offered to get me one. So I thought, well that's great, but that's a whole other <laughs> information thing of how do you navigate cell phones in a way that is intelligent and then doesn't <laughs> drive you and make you available every single minute of the day, you know. So this whole bit of, you know, we have access to information, but, you know, for me, I suffer from information overload, like as a regular feature since I've come back into the States. I'm processing too much information. And so how to, like, turn the volume down, turn off the computer, shut down the Facebook accounts, you know, make it go asleep, and have some kind of discipline or parameters around the way that I use it so that I'm actually using it in accordance with values that are congruent rather than just being driven by an energy that has its own mind, really, you know. 
And this is, a, is an inquiry, which I think actually would be really worthwhile as just a topic of discussion, is how do you deal with information overload in a way which is congruent with your values? You know, how do we do this? And what makes sense? You know, and, you know, I don't, I don't think that they're magic wands, but I think that there are ways of coming back to values and being able to support each other in navigating these territories which are complicated and yet doing it in a way which serves us rather than drives us. No, not easy. It's not easy. But it's worthwhile. You know. So information overload and then pressure. So there's pressure in order just to make ends meet. And, you know, with the economy turning upside down and things being what they are, there are a lot of people who are really struggling financially. And so even though houses are lovely and cars are fancy, you know, it's like, you know, how do you actually make enough money to make the bills come together is for many people a considered concern. And around that is naturally fear and anxiety and apprehension and all the kinds of future thinking and what-if kinds of thoughts and the body getting tense and tight. And, you know, how do you manage all of that? And, you know, I don't have, again, magic wands to answer that. But I know that, you know, in my own situation where I'm having to navigate I've lived in monasteries for much of the last 20 years and issues around how the food was going to come or whether the rent was going to be paid or I had a place to live. And now I'm having to start with zero and start everything from zero. And so for me, the kind of question is, is, well, can I keep it as kind of minimal overhead as possible so that I take as much pressure out of the kind of overhead as I can manage? Now, I'm starting... You know, I don't have a mortgage. I don't, I, don't, I don't have a commitment to car payments or things like that. I'm starting. So I have the ability to make choices like that. And I recognize that for many people, they're already committed into a lifestyle that has all kinds of... Uh, to get out would take a quite a lot of energy. Yeah. But just beginning to start thinking about, well, how one can lower one's overhead. You know, what is actually essential? What isn't essential then begins to reduce the equation for, well, how do I keep the kind of thing running in order to keep it going, to, well, what what can I shift and what can I change and what can I get rid of and how can I, you know, downsize? How can I make it less complicated and easier to support? Or how can I think about this outside of the box so that, you know, I'm not pushing myself to feel or to fill the same requirements that may have been very sustainable three years ago. But now, they cause a kind of pressure that needs to be navigated. The pressure comes from us from economic struggle. It comes from us from uh, not only our own personal economic struggle, but you know the state is in a terrible economic struggle and the country is in a, quite a struggle economically. And then there's pressure politically about what's actually going on and how things are being handled or not handled or all of that. And we're impacted by it, you know. I don't watch the news. I hear the news from my family. But just hearing the news, I'm impacted by the kind of, you know, madness things that get activated and stirred up and the kind of things that people are running with and and the way our leaders are responding to that. You know, and the kind of, you know, so it impacts us. So it's not only our own individual world and the world of our family and friends that infects us, but it's also, you know, what's going on on a state level and at a national level and a global level. And so in addition to the specifics that our own particular country is navigating, we also have a world situation right now which is pretty remarkable, you know, in terms of, There's a tremendous amount of confluence of things coming together, which is looking like if we are not able to step up uh, another level of consciousness in our collaborative uh, decision-making processes, 
We are pretty much fair, fairly certain of a creek without a paddle. You know, it's like pretty much for sure. You know, so that also puts pressure on a system, and we feel it personally. And each of us is going to feel it in a different way. So with that, we are going to experience anxiety. We're going to experience depression. We're going to experience cynicism. We're going to experience a lack of energy, exhaustion, as a natural response to a kind of personal, national, global situation that we're in. It's like that comes a little bit with the territory. And I see that that's actually what I'm observing in the people that I'm having contact with. You know, I went, I taught a couple of retreats last year, and the number of people who came with clinical depression was striking. You know, it's like a lot of people are having to wrestle with these kinds of energetic manifestations of what happens when a system is not handling this kind of pressure. You know. So we are in a lovely space and there is generosity and kindness. But underneath that there's all this other stuff which we're having to take care of and attend to and respond to and it's not so easy. things which I also notice, you know, I have traveled around quite a bit now, which is ironic. I find it ironic. I'm an alms mendicant. I don't have any money. And I travel all over the planet. You know, it just, it never ceases to kind of blow my mind. But there are different cultural things that become obvious <coughs> in different places. And so, you know, I spent 20 years in England, and there's a kind of cultural value system around communicating in certain ways and so people tend to be reserved and polite and understated and that's like that's the good thing to do and I remember when I first came to England and and, uh, people were giving me strong signals that I was coming on very strong and I was in their face and I was like you know, what's the deal? I'm just being normal, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And it took me, I don't know, probably about seven years to work out that the body language and communication styles are just very different. And what, for me, was familiar and friendly and making contact, for many people from a British context, was threatening, invasive, and over the top, you know? And then... It took a long time to rework those body language signals so that I wasn't interpreting them backing off as not liking me, but just needing a little bit more space or needing to take a little bit more time or whatever. And so, you know, so that's my English, and I have it now. You know, I've kind of got the how to do double backflips and never say anything directly. And there's a way in which there's a, there's a value in actually stepping back and taking care and being polite and all the rest of that. And yet I come back into this culture and I notice the opposite, which is that people are much more comfortable being direct and people are much more comfortable entering into the immediacy of contact with you in your energetic field and, and speaking directly to the point. You know, there's a story. I love this story. I just love this story. We were, this was ages ago, so I was a young nun, and, and as it was at the time, the monks were training the nuns, and so the, 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 there had been a meeting, and we were all supposed to gather and listen, and the monk was going to come, and he was going to give us a talk or teach us or something, and we were waiting, because one of the sisters, who was North American, didn't come. So the senior nun who was there is British, and she said, I will go and ask her to come, and I'll, you know, and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll make it very apparent we're waiting for her. So she, she went and she, she said something and she came back and she indicated she talked to her and she made it explicitly clear we were all waiting for her and that, you know, she'll, she's coming. And we waited 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 and 45 minutes later she shows up. And so I checked it with her afterwards. I said, well, what happened? 
she said it took her 45 minutes for her to work out that what she was saying was is that <laughs> everyone was waiting for her. <laughs> and you know, in this culture, this is like just not happening. Get your ass in here. That's right. <laughs> and every, yeah. So, but one of the things that I find, which is also very fascinating, is is that because people are more direct. And what I also notice is that people tend to have more skill in communication. But along with that is the assumption that if I communicate clearly, I'll get what I want. (laughs) And so it's like communication skills are good, you know, and sometimes being direct absolutely has a point. But we miss like the kind of fundamental thing, which is the desire to have what one wants is not necessarily placated by communication skills, okay? And so we missed, like, the big thing, the elephant, you know? But actually what's happening is I want something, and I want it now, and we don't pay attention to that's actually what's driving us. And that we think that because we have this capacity to communicate and communicate clearly and communicate directly, then our needs are going to get met. And we feel very put out and disappointed when that is not the case. So, you know, when we look at what goes on in ourselves and we look at the kind of territory of what's happening, you know, we need to see that desire expresses itself in many different ways. And ignorance is not stupid in finding ways of covering it over. Okay? So we have all kinds of strategies that covers over our basic desires of wanting to have what we want, wanting to get rid of what we don't want, not liking things to change when we don't like them to change, and wanting things to change very quickly when they're not suiting our own needs. All right? And so we dress these kind of basic human desires up with strategies and language and communication styles, and we miss the basic kind of energy of wanting and not wanting. And then suffer. And sometimes suffer quite a lot. So when we are able to come back to, well, what's actually happening? All right. So what's actually happening is I want something. You know, so I use my nonviolent communication in order to get what I want. (laughs) And we miss that what's happening is, is that we're wanting something. So when we can bring our attention back to the simplicity of just wanting, then what happens is we can be present with the energy of wanting. And being present with the energy of wanting right there is the opportunity to see how wanting can shift when we attend to it in the right way. One of the other things that I notice in this culture, which is different than in other cultures, is is that we have a constitution, and the constitution gives us the right for health, happiness, and the pursuit of freedom. It's our right. It's our constitutional right. And so we take that, or I notice is that an American culture takes that as like, that I, suffering is not, not part of the constitutional rights. If that's not in the agreement. And so we have like as a culture a fundamental relationship with suffering which is different than other cultures have that do not have a constitution that says you have a right to freedom it's very interesting but it's a cultural bias and I think it has to do with a very deep seated um, sense that we have a right to be free and we have taken that as a right to be free from suffering And along with that tends to be a sense of entitlement, which I experience in this culture, which is vastly larger than I have experienced any place else. I am entitled, and I am entitled to praise and to happiness and to freedom and to having everything that I want and to feeling comfortable nearly all of the time. And that is also cultural. It comes, I think, partly with the territory. So when these assumptions are not questioned or examined carefully, they become beliefs, and the beliefs become thought patterns, and the thought patterns are acted out, and when the thought patterns are not seen for what they are, then the natural consequences is then when we don't get what we want, when people don't praise us the way we think they should, when we feel uncomfortable, we feel totally put out. 
But when we come back to like the kind of basic stuff of life, when you've got a body, when you've got a heart, when you've got a mind, suffering is part of the package. Well, actually, that's not entirely true. Pain is part of the package. All right? So it is inevitable when we have a physical body that we're going to feel uncomfortable. Now, we have in, in ways of relating to that. We have ways of exercising and eating right and sleeping in appropriate ways. We have ways of learning to relax so that we can have an influence on in the kind of physical pain that we have. But we can't exempt ourselves from the package. We have some influence, but we can't exempt ourselves from the fact that pain comes with having a physical body. But our kind of cultural overlays is that we're not supposed to suffer. It's our constitutional right to health and to happiness and to freedom. And the amount of care that goes into diet and to medicines and to herbals and to all the rest of that here is more than I have ever seen anywhere else on the planet. Now, it doesn't mean that people need to stop doing that. But what's just really helpful is to begin to see again how much of this is an intelligent and responsive act to the situation and how much of this is a compulsive need out of this kind of fantasy that if we take all the vitamins and do all the special diets and are wheat-free and gluten-free and dairy-free, then we're not going to suffer. So again, it's coming back to seeing it's not so much what we're doing. It's not even so much the thoughts that we have, but how we relate to it. Now, there's, there's nothing wrong with wanting praise. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to be seen or acknowledged. But there's quite a difference between having a sense of that, watching that arise in the mind, and then grasping onto that and following through with that in action and speech when it isn't gratified. So I don't think that there's anything wrong with the patterns. I think what is needed is just more conscious awareness that these are the patterns. And to begin to shift things the same with the information. Rather, the information drives us we begin to come closer into what our values are and see how our values are or are not congruent with our attitudes and then begin to start making adjustments. And the adjustments can be to begin to examine when they are no longer useful, but also to begin to see if our assumptions are connected to a fundamental sense of truth or not. If our assumptions are somehow connected to an idea that we should not suffer, we should not experience pain, that people should be there for us, available to us, appreciate us, see us, recognize us, and acknowledge us at all times, then our assumptions may be worth re-looking at. Yeah? Because inherent in them is a setup for frustration and disappointment and a sense of lack. All right? My mother came and visited me today. A few of you know my mom. She's 80 years old, but she absolutely does not look 80 years old. And both of us were disappointed because I canceled the... We were going to be camping together for five days, and I need to go home to look after my dad because he's been really sick. And so I'm staying with some very lovely people, and I explained to them my mom is 80 years old. So my mom comes in, and I'm introducing her, and this very lovely man, he says... Oh, he says, you seem to be clear. <laughs> you're not, well, you're clear. You're not, you're not confused. And I thought, you know, this is, this is an assumption of what it might be like when you're 80 years old, that you're demented, you're confused, you're, uh, you can't... <laughs> 
you can't pay attention, you're not present with what's happening. And so I was just watching this idea of what people think about what happens when you're, what would be a likely scenario when you're 80 years old. And, you know, on some level, again, you know, we need to prepare ourselves for the fact when we get older, there's all kinds of things that we don't have control over and we don't necessarily have so much control over what happens to our bodies and our memories and all the rest of that. But it was hilarious, particularly with my mom, who was like an absolute dynamo. It's only in the last few years that I can (laughs) keep up with her, you know. (laughs) And so, you know, the whole aging process, which all of us are in, you know, of, of what happens as our bodies get older and this process of losing control and the assumptions or expectations of, you know, what that might look like for ourselves or as we negotiate that with members of our family who we're close to, you know. How do we experience that whole process? And what happens with our own sense of self and our own identity, both as we're negotiating that with somebody that we love and as we experience it directly ourselves? So one of the things that happens as we uh, journey in life is we, we experience things being out of control. And again, nothing has really gone wrong. That's pretty natural. But we are living in a society where the message are consistently that that is not something that's supposed to happen. And so we're constantly needing to reframe our own internal experience according with truths that make sense to us rather than use the media billboards as a way of defining our own internal reality. My dad has been really sick, and uh, he came pretty close to dying. And, you know, our society doesn't do aging and death very well. It's like, you know, it's, it's a top-secret activity that happens behind closed doors. And it's like, and yet on one hand, it's the most natural thing in the whole world, you know. When you have birth, this is absolutely natural that aging and death follows. And yet, the impact of having to navigate not only the personal feelings of, you know, watching this process happen with my father, but also navigating the different family members who are just coming on board with the program, you know, that that actually, that this is happening, you know, and their resistance and the layers of what is needed in order for them to wake up. It's all impactful you know I feel it and so you know one of the things about our society and this is not unique to North American people this is pretty much true for most people is is, is that you know it's the most natural thing in the world and yet everyone somehow thinks that they're an exception you know that it's not going to happen to them or it's going to only happen to them when they're 93 years old and they take one breath and then they're gone. And so, you know, we don't, we don't imagine sickness and death as a reality that each of us actually at some point in our lives has to navigate. And yet when we come into that territory, either because we're experiencing profound illness or self, or we're walking that journey close with somebody else, we can begin to see the kind of assumptions that we have about how long we expect to live or how we think all of this is supposed to be like. Because we don't know. Yeah. So for me, the real um, turning point in practice is not so much about having practice to fit in any particular formula or for there to be any kind of magic wands or for there to be a kind of radical transformation of the values and the beliefs that we have. 
But what happens is, is that there comes a, an interest in waking up to actually seeing the beliefs and the patterns and the values and beginning to see how those are affecting other parts of my life and seeing the way in which some of the values that I have are useful or some of the values that I have are outdated, they're no longer useful. When we work with the physical experience of having a body and deal with the challenge of having knees that ache and feet that sometimes hurt or whatever, shoulders that are tight and all the rest of that, it's important to learn and develop skill on how to relax the body and how to live as an embodied experience rather than beside ourselves or in front of ourselves, which our society supports doing things like that a lot. Yeah. And so just coming back into the present moment and feeling the physical body and just getting a sense of how does it feel to be sitting here and what's actually happening with the soles of the feet and how is the breath and how are all of these things <coughs> affecting the mind become anchor places for being able to work with the feelings and the thoughts and the values that we can then become more aware of. So learning how to bring balance into our physical body learning how to relax and bring ease into our physical body, learning how to brighten and energize our physical body, especially when there's such pressure and many of us feel exhausted a lot of the time. You know, learning how to rest, how to take time out, how to do things which nourish. Now, these are important things to cultivate, to develop, to learn to make time for, you know. Being in a place like this where there's sailboats and being on the fresh water and just letting the cobwebs blow through when you have a, have a chance to be out in nature like that where there's just you know the wind and the power of the elements coming together with sails and water and wind. Just you know, learning how to make time for things like that in our lives to help us ground and anchor. And then beginning to get a sense that, yes, all right, so when you have a physical body, there's going to be times when it's unpleasant and times when it's pleasant. And that comes with the territory. And so learning how to be aware of pleasant and unpleasant as an aspect of nature rather than as something that's gone wrong or something that we are trying to manipulate in order to get what we want. And then the whole world of thoughts and emotions and perceptions and feelings and values and attitudes, beginning to see them for that, just that. And some of them need to be carefully examined. Some of them might need to be binned. But what they need to be is seen for what they are. Their thoughts, their values, their attitudes. And see how they shape the decisions that we make or the way we change or place our attention, or how we prioritize our time. So the stuff of our life, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, comes and goes. It comes and goes according to different conditions. And the pivotal point of transformation isn't in being a master manipulator, but being able to see that for what it is and being able to recognize our relationship with it. So we have a body. We feel things. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's joyous. Sometimes it's exalted. Sometimes it's low. In itself, those are not the problem. The problem is, is what we do with it. The wanting it to be different the wishing it were change, the expectation that if I communicate clearly, I'll be able to get what I want. And so it's not the stuff itself of life which is inherently the problem. It's our way of relating to it, which is really the big key. Now, we do have capacity to make choices. And because of that, we can change. We can do things differently. But what is present in every single moment 
in every single moment, even if we are distressed or distraught, is the ability to see what is happening right now and how am I relating to it. I'm a four in Enneagram four. Do you know what that means? <laughs> I'm the drama queen, the tragic romantic, you know? And for a long time, I was absolutely swallowed up in that pattern, you know? And then after a while, I began to see the pattern for the pattern. And then it, wouldn't, it didn't grab me so much. It was something that I could use more as a, as a, as a costume, you know? So I can't change the four. I can't decide I'm a seven or an eight, you know, or a six. <laughs> but I can learn to relate to the patterning in a very different way, not taking it so seriously, beginning to recognize the things when they grab me, making space for that, being able to take a step back. And so for me, you know, there's two things that we need to be able to focus on. One is learning how to find more balance in our lives, both in our physical bodies, in our priorities, our choices, our values, in the kinds of attitudes that we believe in and buy into, in the kind of friendships that we make, what we do for our community, how we feel that we need to place our attention in order that we can contribute to collaborative decision-making processes that are, make sense and congruent with our values. But what's also really important is to come back that no matter how difficult it is, as long as there's some capacity to make choice and to stay aware, we can always watch how we're relating to it. And that is really a key that we don't have to give away, no matter how hard it gets. So, you know, we can take really extreme examples. You know, I was reading a book. I can't remember the name of it. But it was about... um, um, an American person who was one of the people who was kidnapped and he was, he was um, kept as a... He was kidnapped and kept for seven years or eight years. And his experience. And, you know, the, the moments of being able to shift his attention from the physical pain to the kindness of the people around him who were supporting each other in living through this absolutely horrendous situation you know and so we have that choice of what we do with our attention where we place our attention it's very rare that we relinquish that choice and so even if things escalate and get ten times worse or a hundred times worse or five hundred times worse or catastrophically worse we still can retain that choice of where we place our attention. And similarly, if there are times of good fortune or abundance or ecstasy or joy or all the rest of that, we don't need to get completely lost in that experience and lose the ground of attention that can just recognize it for what it is. Because if we buy into high, then we know what follows is low. And so it's not to say that we need to deny or to negate success and joy and happiness and pleasure. But when we come into a skillful relationship with it, then it means that we aren't so devastated when the inevitability of it changing comes to pass. And likewise, if things are tough, difficult, we can begin to find sufficient ground and so we can continue to place our attention in that which is wholesome and healthy and weather the challenge until things shift. So 
So even in the midst of beauty and generosity, you know, there are challenges. And it's nobody's fault. They're not here because you've done something wrong. And yet we can wake up to them in a way where our hearts open, our bodies relax, and our whole sense of well-being rests. We can use the stuff of our life as compost to nourish our own sense of well-being, our capacity to extend ourselves in times of difficulty, and to learn how to have stability in times of good fortune happiness, joy, bliss, pleasure. And in this way, we balance these two of learning to bring balance in our lives as well as learning to see things for what they are and not getting confused by what's arising. And the sum total of these two is more sense of ease and well-being and an inner sense of freedom as we navigate the territory of what it is to be human at this particular junction in time. I think I'd like to close with a story. Those of you who have been on retreat with me might have heard this story before, but most people here haven't, so it'll be new to you. It's a true story. There's a a man who was the father of a child who had uh, quite severe disabilities. And he was speaking at a... some kind of a school event for parents of children who are severely disabled. And he starts this conversation by saying, you know, when I think of my son, I don't know where he fits in the spectrum of the universe. Now, when I think of that, I just can't imagine of what kind of a journey it would be like for a parent to even come up with words like that. You know, just heartbreaking, really. And then he goes on to tell the story. And he says, you know, he was walking with his son and they were in a park. And I don't remember where this took place. And there were some boys and they were playing ball. And his son said he wanted to play ball. So what is dad going to do, you know? So he thought about it for a while and he thought, well, you know, There's no harm in asking. You know, the worst that can happen is that they say no. So he goes up to the pitcher and he says, you know, my son would like to play ball. So how long does it take a kid to suss out another kid and know something is up? One-tenth of a second? Less? So the pitcher was looking at this child and was in a dilemma because he was being put on a spot and his decision was going to affect everybody on the team. And he couldn't rally the whole team to have some kind of a collaborative thing. He was put on the spot to decide. So he decided he can play ball. So this little fellow was out in left field with his baseball mitt, running back and forth, grinning from ear to ear because he was one of the boys and he was playing ball. And he was absolutely ecstatic just to be one of the boys playing ball. And so, you know, the game's continued and the innings came and passed and it was the last inning and somehow or another he was up for bat now how they decided that he was going to be up for bat I don't know but he was up for bat and <laughs> the baseball diamond was was loaded and the, and the game was tied and this guy is up to bat and so, you know, they, they, they coached him. You know, they say, hold the bat like this. You know, walk up here and stand there, all right? That's, that's right. Just stand there. Hold the bat right. Okay, so the pitcher moved in and threw the baseball right at the bat. And it missed. Nobody was surprised. So the pitcher moved in closer mm-hmm. and threw the ball right at 
the bat. And it connected. And it rolled two inches. And he grabbed the ball, and he turned around, and he heaved it into left field. (laughs) And then everybody on his team said, drop the bat. Drop the bat and run that way. Go that way. Go that way. It's that way. So he worked out how to drop the bat, and they chased him around till he was running that way, and they got going in that direction. And then the left field person picked up the ball, turns around, and heaves it into the right field. And now his team is chasing him around the baseball diamond, and then the other team is chasing him around the baseball diamond. So both teams chasing him around the baseball diamond. That bat, that, that diamond, and that one, and then go there, and then that's home. So he hit a home run, and he won the game. And, you know, when I tell the story, I just crack up every single time because, you know, the father says, when I think about my son and I think about the compassion that people respond to him with, that is how I know how he fits in this universe. And one of the things about this story that really touches me, these were kids, all right? And in an instant, the game changed. And it changed in a way where every single person won, okay? Not only that little fella and his dad and everybody that was playing and everyone that was watching, but everyone that heard that story won. So when we start responding to our lives in a way where occasionally we can rise to the occasion where everyone wins, this is the journey from mock to freedom. And this is the transformation that's possible in every moment. Who is making up the rules? And what game do you want to play? So I'll leave that with you for now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.